like audiobooks or audio shows, check out a free trial of Audible. Just click the link in the description. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Mind Shock Podcast. This is episode four of the Mothman series 13 Months of Fear. If you're new to the Mothman case, the Mothman is a winged beast, a man-like creature with glowing red eyes that terrorized Point Pleasant, West Virginia in 1966 and 1967. It was sighted over a period of 13 months, accompanying other bizarre activity like UFOs and men in black. The Mothman case was popularized by ufologist and paranormal researcher John Keel. He wrote the book The Mothman Prophecies in 1975. It was later turned into a movie. The majority of the sightings occurred in November of 1966, but the Mothman didn't stop there. It continued to be sighted over the course of 13 months. 13 months of fear. In the previous episodes, I discussed what the Mothman could possibly be. Whether a mutant freak, a cryptid, an alien, an interdimensional traveler of some kind. What's interesting to note that the Mothman directly didn't kill anyone. Some people believe it was responsible for several dogs being killed, mauled. Linda Scarberry herself disputes this. And she had several strange encounters with the Mothman beyond that original night in November of 1966. She felt that the Mothman was not responsible for the dog deaths or kidnappings. Keel speculated that all of Point Pleasant, the entire Point Pleasant area between West Virginia and Ohio, became a nexus of sorts for paranormal supernatural activity possibly monitored by the U.S. government. And this is one of the first cases of mass men in black activity. In this episode, I'll discuss the rest of the Mothman sightings over the next 13 months, leading up to the Silver Bridge disaster, a tragedy which claimed several dozen lives. And coincidentally, the Mothman ceased to be sighted afterwards. Very, very curious. So many of the locals and other researchers that have researched this Mothman case believe that premonitions played a role in this entire case. If the Mothman is simply an angel of death, a harbinger of doom and destruction, he was there to warn or was he there to instill fear? We don't know, so we will be exploring all of these scenarios and possibilities. So there were many sightings that November in 1966. I went over them in the previous episodes. So now, moving on to December. On December 4th, 1966, 3 p.m., five pilots saw a gigantic bird flying over them at the Gallipolis Airport Strip. Everett Wedge, Henry Upton, Ernie Thompson, Leo Edwards, and Eddie Adkins were standing on the Gallipolis Airport Strip when they saw this bird creature flying at 300 feet above them 70 miles an hour without the use of its wings. They described it as effortless flying. 
When they first saw it, they mistook it for an airplane. Look at that crazy character coming in downwind in that plane, Eddie Adkins had said. As it flew past the airport, the men noticed that it had an unusually long neck and was turning its head from side to side as if taking in the scenery. It was like something prehistoric, one of them said later. I don't think it was any crane. By prehistoric, I mean, I guess he's suggesting more pterodactyl-like or possibly Thunderbird-like. And that's the other interesting thing about all these sightings. The skeptics constantly have said, oh, they just mistook it for an owl or a sandhill crane. Now, these are very opposite things. So a lot of these Mothman sightings report that there was no neck, that its head is hunched in with glowing red eyes, kind of like an owl, but the size of a man or bigger with a 10-foot wingspan. There's no owl that big. Or if you say it's a sandhill crane, then it wouldn't have a neck. But these are pilots no doubt and this is what they're saying wedge grabbed his camera jumped into his plane and went after it but it was gone down river by that point everett reported it was big enough that it could pick me or you up and probably carry us away that's how big it was i've been around lots in my time and i never ever Saw a bird that big, but I did see it. Like I said, I might not have quite 20-20 eyes now, but I did then. So, very interesting sighting. Once again, we have pilots. No doubt interested in remaining credible members of society and not making up stories who, instead of copying newspaper reports about glowing red eyes and no neck, they have a unique sighting in the daytime. A rare daytime sighting and an unusually long neck. So this would lead some credence to the giant crane theory, perhaps a giant mutated crane from the TNT plant. However, they clearly state they don't think it was a crane. Very interesting. December 6th, just two days later, two unnamed adults were in the TNT area and they spotted the Mothman beast. They reported the classic description giant gray humanoid, big wings, and glowing red eyes. That same day, 115 miles to the southwest in Maysville, Kentucky, a mailman saw a large creature in flight. Nothing more on either sighting. December 7th, in Ohio, near the Athens-Hawking County line, Route 33, four women in a car almost collided with the Mothman. The witnesses described the creature as man-sized, brownish-silver in color, and of course, the glowing red eyes. No info on what time that sighting occurred, but at 9 p.m., UFO researcher and Mothman Prophecies author John Keel and journalist Mary Heyer had their own Mothman encounter. Mary Heyer is, of course, the famous journalist and newspaper reporter who reported on all of this strange activity in Point Pleasant. From his book, Keel recounts this night. We decided to go out to the TNT area so I could have my first look at the site. And this he's reporting on his first day at Point Pleasant. He interviewed uh, some of the witnesses, Connie Carpenter, the Mallets, and now they're all going out to the TNT area. So this is his uh, 
his details of that night. At about 9 p.m., we drove to the old ammunition dump. The police had now locked the old gate leading to the power plant, but it was no problem to squeeze through the fence. The night was dark and overcast, and the rickety building was just a huge black lump on the landscape. We gathered outside the main entrance. The crowds who had swarmed there weeks earlier had given up, so we were alone. Ten people. I carried my powerful 6 cell flashlight. To me... To me, this was just another broken, deserted building in a remote spot. I was used to prowling around such places alone in the dark, but I was troubled by the fear that now seemed to be gripping our little expedition. Their nervousness was real. Only Connie and Keith volunteered to enter the building with me. The others clustered outside. The three of us went into the ruin. Connie was joking and in good spirits. Keith was sober and quiet. The interior of the building was filled with debris and silence except for the soft sound of dripping water. Large rusting boilers stood on the ground floor. I peered into them with my flashlight. Mothman wasn't hiding there. I climbed the steel ladders and strolled the catwalks. Even the pigeons seemed to have deserted the place. Satisfied that the building was empty, we started for the exit. I preceded the other two with my flashlight as she stepped through the door which led into the small chamber where the main exit was located, Connie glanced over her shoulder and let out a horrified gasp. Those eyes, she screamed. He's there. She dissolved into total hysteria, crying uncontrollably. The brave, cheerful girl of a moment ago was now a blubbering wreck. Keith and I rushed her outside. I saw those eyes, two big red eyes, by the wall in the back. She managed to choke out. While everyone gathered around her and tried to calm her down, I turned and rushed back into the building. The wall at the far end of the boiler room was blank. There was nothing there that could have reflected the light from my flashlight. Again, I searched the building from top to bottom and found nothing. When I got back outside, I found a police officer, Deputy Alva Sullivan, had joined our group. Like others, he had been reluctant to enter the building and help me with my search. They were all looking through a fence facing a field that went behind the power plant. We thought we saw something in the back of the plant, Mary Heyer explained. A tall figure running, was it you? No, I never left the building. What was that noise while you were in there, Mabel McDaniel asked. What noise? It was metallic and hollow, a loud noise like a piece of metal had fallen all the way down from the top or something. Everyone had heard the sound except me, and I hadn't done anything to make such a noise. Keith led Connie, still crying, to the car. Please, let's get out of here, she begged. I'm bleeding, Mary Mallet suddenly explained, cupping her hand to her ear. I flashed my light into her ear. A small trickle of blood was oozing out. Did you hear anything else, I asked. Everyone shook his head. No, but it doesn't feel right here, does it, Mary Heyer observed. It feels oppressive. Heavy. I had to agree with her. Something did seem to be out of whack. Steve Mallet let his wife away. Now we had two hysterical women on our hands. Did you really see somebody back there? I asked Deputy Sullivan quietly. It's hard to say. Might have been an animal, a deer or something. The whole group was now in a state bordering on sheer panic. I could see that their feelings were real. This was not just some kind of an act being staged for my benefit. 
I'm no hero, but I did not share their fear. Mrs. Mallet's bleeding ear was a sign of concussion, meaning the air pressure had changed suddenly. Connie had apparently had a hallucinatory or psychic glimpse of those frightening eyes. The metallic clang could not have come from inside the building or I would have heard it too. It might have been associated with the sudden change in air pressure. I scanned the black skies. There was not a star, not a light visible. We all filed back to our cars and returned to the McDaniels' home. Mary Mallet's ear stopped bleeding. Keith drove a still-shaking Connie Carpenter home. And being an all-time idiot, I returned to the TNT area for another look. It was well past midnight as I drove aimlessly up and down the dirt road among the igloos. Mothman did not pop out of the bushes to cry boo, but I did have one curious experience. As I passed a certain point on one of the isolated roads, I was suddenly engulfed in fear. I stepped on the gas after I went a few yards. My fear vanished as quickly as it came. I continued to drive, eventually returning again to the same spot. And again, a wave of unspeakable fear swept over me. I drove quickly away from the place and then stopped puzzled. Why would this one stretch of road produce this hair-raising effect? I turned around and slowly headed back, trying to note trees, fence posts, and other landmarks in the dark. Once again, when I reached that particular point, the hair tingled on the back of my neck and I became genuinely afraid. When I emerged from the other side of this invisible zone, I stopped and got out of my car. The air was perfectly still. There wasn't an audible sound, not even a bird call. I was reminded of the hour of quiet that settles inexplicably over the jungle in early morning when suddenly, usually around 2 a.m., all of the animals, birds, even the insects, become totally silent for about two hours. If you're not used to the jungle and its ways, the sudden silence can wake you from a deep sleep. I walked back to the zone of fear, slowly, alert for any rustles of bushes, measuring my own breathing and emotions. I was perfectly calm until I took one step too many and was back in the zone. I almost panicked and ran, but I forced myself to look around and proceed slowly. By now I had figured out that I was probably walking through a beam of ultrasonic waves and really had nothing to be afraid of. After I had gone about 15 feet, I stepped outside the zone and everything was normal again. Now I had to walk through the damn spot again to get back to my car. It was too dark, almost pitch black, and I was too unfamiliar with the TNT area at the time to attempt to go around the zone. Although I knew it was harmless, I dreaded re-entering it. I actually considered remaining there only yards from my car until daybreak. But I finally steeled myself and walked once more through that invisible stream. Scared out of my wits in transit, yet privately pleased with my discovery. In daylight, I returned to the same spot. The zone of fear was gone. I searched for power transmission lines, telephone microwave towers, and anything that might have radiated energy through the area. There was nothing. Nor did a daytime exploration of the power plant reveal anything Connie might have mistaken for red eyes. Mrs. Mallet's bleeding ear and my discovery of the ultrasonic zone of fear convinced me that UFO-type phenomena were present in the TNT area even though the police and press had not received any reports. I asked Mrs. Heyer and the McDaniels to be alert for any rumors of sightings. Within days, I tracked down dozens of UFO witnesses throughout the Ohio Valley. 
UFOs are the subject of our next episodes, but there's this encounter that night directly from John Keel. The story has morphed a bit over the years with changing number of witnesses and exact details, but this was written close to the time it occurred. What do we think? The ultrasonic zone immediately makes me think some kind of government experiment, possibly involving the Mothman, possibly not. So, again, I mentioned this whole nexus of strange activity in the Point Pleasant area. Maybe it's also possible that these phenomena are occurring simultaneously without relating to each other. Possibly a coincidence, possibly not. We'll, we'll take a look at this again when we get into the UFOs and see the if we can match up the timelines. Another consecutive day sighting on December 8th occurred when two women on Route 35 in West Virginia saw a shadowy figure on a hill with glowing red eyes. December 11th brought us two more sightings. Catlin Beaver along Route 35 saw the beast speeding past her car. It had glowing red eyes and was a huge gray creature. Another sighting happened when Chester Laporte and Stevie Pearson Jr. were looking for a Christmas tree in the TNT area. <laughs> I guess that's a good place to go looking, especially during Mothman season. They spotted the gray humanoid creature flying at great speed over the TNT area. So that's a pretty bizarre report. I'm still not 100% sure what they were doing looking for a Christmas tree there. I mean... That area of West Virginia isn't exactly New York City in concrete jungle. You could probably get one in a lot of places, but they wanted to go there. Maybe they were also looking for the Mothman. Who knows? Then, apparently, it was quiet for an entire month. No reported sightings. Detractors once again point to mass hysteria, but why was no one being hysterical in these four weeks? Did they simply forget about the Mothman and then suddenly remember? Or if it was a bird... Some kind of an owl or sandhill crane? Did they suddenly hibernate for exactly four weeks and then re-emerge for more sightings? <laughs> of course it is logical to assume there may have been more sightings by people afraid to come forward. January 11th, 1967 is when Linda Scarberry's mother, Mabel McDaniel, witnessed the Mothman. I mentioned this briefly when talking about the Scarberries, but here it is again. She was driving on Jackson Avenue near Tiny's Diner at about 5 p.m. when she spotted the Mothman over Route 62. I thought it was an airplane, then I realized it was flying much too low, she reported. It was brown and had a wingspan of at least 10 feet. Then she added an interesting detail. I thought I could see two legs, like men's legs, hanging down from it. It circled over Tiny's diner and then flew off. She did not see any head or neck, and the wings were not moving, and there was no sound. Okay, now there's an even bigger lull in sightings. Nothing until March 12th, 1967. About 10 miles east of Point Pleasant along the Ohio River in Latart Falls, Ohio, a woman claimed to see a large white flying creature with long hair fly right in front of her car, 10-foot wingspan. Another interesting anomaly. Most sightings identify this creature as dark gray, black, brown, maybe, sometimes silverish, but completely white. That's unusual for sure. Once again, people just jumping on the bandwagon and making up sightings, but then now these people are adding their own details. It's, it's weird. In April, 
on a rainy night, an unnamed man from Ohio had been driving along Route 2 near the chief cornstalk hunting grounds when a large black form rose from the woods and flew over his car. It was at least 10 feet wide, he claimed. I stepped on the gas and it kept right up with me. We were going over 70. It scared the hell out of me. Then I saw it move ahead of me and turn toward the river. This man would later have a Men in Black encounter in October. Then, in May, one of the most stunning sightings. Mothman and a UFO. We'll be getting into the UFO phenomenon that occurred at this time in the next episode, as its connection to Mothman has never been definitively proved. However, this sighting is the closest thing to a connection so far. On May 19, 1967, on Route 62 by the TNT area, 10.30 p.m., two women were driving, one of which was Brenda Stone, claimed to have seen the Mothman. When we saw two bright red lights on a shadowy form high in a tree just off the road, suddenly this big red light appeared and approached the tree, and the form rose up towards it and disappeared. The, then the big light took off to the north. So is this the Mothman flying towards the UFO, or... Is the UFO abducting the Mothman? Is this a peculiar sighting or what? I mean, absolutely bizarre, stunning, unbelievable. This is insane. And most of uh, the whole Mothman mythology and lore, this, this sighting for some reason is not talked about a lot. I mean, this is absolutely incredible if you find Brenda Stone credible. Or she just made it up. Her and her friend just completely made it up. Why they would do that, I have no clue. And uh, it's not like she was after fame and fortune, like this is a barely mentioned account, very under the radar. With all the sightings of Mothman and UFOs, this is the only one claiming direct interaction and simultaneous sighting of both the Mothman and a UFO. Once again, this would lead credence to the theory that Mothman is an alien. Or maybe even Mothman is uh some kind of a experiment from the aliens. They just they just dropped it off on planet Earth for, you know, so it could run around like a dog at the park and then they picked it right back up. I mean, just absolutely bizarre. Then there's an even bigger lull in sightings. Nothing Mothman until nearly a year from the original sightings. So we're in November 1967 now. On the second of the month, Virginia Thomas, Marcella Bennett's sister, who lived by the TNT area, heard a bizarre squeaking sound. This is who Bennett and Wamsley were going to visit during their encounter on November 16th of the previous year, when Virginia was not home. So this is Marcella Bennett who went face to face with the Mothman. She did not see the red eyes, she fell on her daughter, then they ran back into the house, the Mothman peeked through the windows, then was gone. Very, very bizarre sighting. Anyway, so now another connected individual, these are all people who know each other in this town, and they're having these experiences. So this is her sighting. The best way I can describe it is that it was like a bad fan belt, but much louder. 
She told reporter Mary Heyer and author John Keel. So she's talking about the bizarre squeaking sound she just heard out of nowhere. I stepped outside. It seemed to be coming from one of the igloos. Then I saw a huge shadow spreading across the grass. It was just afternoon, so there shouldn't have been any shadow like that. Then this figure appeared. It walked erect like a man, but it was all gray, and it was much bigger than any man I ever saw. It moved very fast across the field and disappeared into the trees. It didn't seem to be walking exactly. It was almost gliding, faster than any man could run. It was the hunting season, so I knew it wasn't a hunter. No hunter in his right mind would dress in gray. Around here, they all wear red coats and red caps. And it wasn't a bear or anything like that. It really scared me. After her experience, Mrs. Thomas was plagued by bad dreams. I see a lot of strange people around the river, she told of her dreams. It's like some kind of invasion or something. They come over the bridge in trucks and they pour into the TNT area. We grab the kids and run. I can't figure out what it means. So we didn't really spend too much time on this, but a lot of the residents of Point Pleasant in the surrounding area who have encountered Mothman or new people who encountered Mothman, there was this very bizarre and energy of doom throughout the whole town and surrounding area. People were having premonitions, bad dreams like this. Now, the first thing that I immediately think is government. Because if the government rolls in with huge trucks and go to the TNT area, if there was some kind of a... Who knows what it is? If it's a secret experiment of the U.S. government that got loose from somewhere else, or who knows what it was, they would come and contain. If it was some kind of alien interdimensional beast, they would come and contain. If it was some unknown threat that they deemed extremely high security risk for whatever reason, they would overrun it with trucks and try to contain it. So we don't know exactly what that means. But, you know, strange people around the river, I mean, this was only one of her dreams that she described here. It'd be interesting to see what the other ones were, whether she had a premonition of the bridge collapse like other people had. had. On an unspecified date that November of 67, four men claimed to have encountered a giant gray figure with red eyes while hunting in the Chief Cornstalk Park in West Virginia. They were so frightened they never thought to raise their rifles until the creature was gone. Once again, one of the most prevalent theories on what the Mothman is connects to the Chief Cornstalk curse. We'll be getting into that in the next episode as well. But a lot of the ancestors, there was a battle, a lot of the ancestors of the folk of Point Pleasant, Virginia, and the surrounding area, their ancestors fought against Chief Cornstalk, and he put a curse on the land, and some, there's a theory that this is what the Mothman is, or there's some kind of connection. Once again, doesn't explain the UFO activity, doesn't explain the men in black necessarily, so it's iffy, but we'll be getting into that to really explore it and see, and see the potential of that theory. So, the Mothman sightings, not as numerous as the prior November in 66. Either people were too scared to come forward, or they were mostly witnessing UFOs and men in black in those 13 months of fear. Not to mention poltergeist activity in homes throughout the entire area. Something I briefly mentioned in the TNT Encounter episode. The original Scarberry Mallet sightings, the Scarberries were 
later basically haunted in their home by all these strange poltergeist occurrences. They weren't the only ones. There was a lot of strange activity in that whole area. It's just bizarre. Very, very bizarre. It's just all stacked on top of each other. In other famous UFO cases, you know, it's like one phenomena, whether discounted or not, and that's it. Here we have so many, and that's what makes this case so mysterious and bizarre. Premonitions and visions also plagued the entire area. Many of the people with these premonitions or visions were witnesses of the Mothman or UFO activity. One of them was Mary Heyer. John Keel recounts in his book about the atmosphere in Point Pleasant in mid-November after the Virginia Thomas sighting. I had flown to West Virginia after a trip to Atlanta and a quick tour through the Carolinas investigating some UFO landings. Mrs. Heyer had picked me up at the Charleston airport, and as we drove to Point Pleasant, she told me about her own dreams. Just before I got your letter, she said, I had a terrible nightmare. There were a lot of people drowning in the river, and Christmas packages were floating everywhere in the water. Maybe you were just picking up my thoughts somehow, I suggested. Maybe, but I've covered a lot of drownings on that river, but never anything like this dream. There were so many people. I've been feeling uneasy ever since, and everyone else feels the same way. You can't really put your finger on it, but it's like something awful is about to happen. Perhaps it was only suggestion and an emotional hangover from all I had been going through, but when we reached Point Pleasant, I can feel a heavy atmosphere of foreboding. I wandered around the village under an oppressive cloud. One by one, old friends confided in me. You know, Keel, something is wrong here. I don't know what. Ever since all that flying saucer business last spring, things just haven't seemed right. We don't get many UFO reports anymore, Mary told me, and except for that thing Mrs. Thomas saw, Mothman seems to be laying low. Everything is quiet. Too quiet. So, that's just a glimpse at the atmosphere of this town and area, and it's just, it's just beyond creepy. Can you imagine living in that kind of atmosphere for months and months and months? It's just, it's really, really weird. It's also creepy to think about all the untold stories of the area at that time. Between Mothman, UFOs, Men in Black, and Poltergeist and other strange activity, the weirdness and dread and doom that normal everyday people must have been going through would be immense. Some came forward, but it's reasonable to assume that there may have been quite a few who didn't. There, there might have been a ton, we don't know. It could have been an extra 100, 200, 500. I mean, we really don't know what happened in those 13 months other than the people that came forward. If we're writing it off as mass hysteria, once again, there could be another 100, 200, 500 cases of hysterical people who were just too scared to come forward with their experience. If you have the position that Mothman didn't exist, it was an owl, then whatever, there, there's a lot of people that could have seen it that didn't come forward that would just, it would complete the picture a little bit more. And you gotta keep that in mind when viewing this case as a whole. But next, we come to the tragic focus of Mothman lore. December 15th, 1967. 13 months after the Scarberry Mallet encounter. The collapse of the Silver Bridge. 
This tragedy claimed 46 lives. The worst bridge collapse disaster in United States history at the time. It was 5 p.m. Christmas shopping traffic in full swing. Due to structural failure, a suspension chain gave way and 31 vehicles plummeted into the river. 44 bodies were recovered, two were not. Nine people seriously injured. Later investigation pinpointed the failure of the bridge to a defect one-tenth of an inch in size on the 13th steel pin eyed bar. Eyed bar number 330. It's a lot of threes and 13s and 13 months, a lot of bizarreness. The bridge was built in 1928 and was never designed to sustain the amount of traffic it had been sustaining for many years. Decades of improper maintenance and overload, as well as rust, were also credited to contributing to its failure. The last sightings of the Mothman were rumored to be on the bridge itself, right before it collapsed. These have never been verified. To me, that's strange. Because if someone had seen it, I guess they just really didn't want to say, maybe it's not that strange. Because if, you know, family and friends died, they didn't really want to say, oh, by the way, I saw the Mothman. I guess, I don't know. So I guess it was just whispers among the locals of who saw what right before the bridge collapsed. After the bridge collapsed, there were no verified sightings. What's interesting is that on December 22nd, it was reported that Ace Henry shot and killed a giant owl. The illogical skeptics point to this incident and the lack of Mothman sightings afterwards to say that it proved it was a giant owl all along, conveniently ignoring the lack of sightings between the 15th and the 22nd. Not to mention the several month gaps between sightings all throughout the year. The following is a newspaper article from December 22nd, 1966. It's called Giant Owl Killed on Area Farm. A bird, although a dead one, is in the news again, and the big question is, is it or isn't it one that may have been spotted here on several occasions? Apparently, it is not the one that was seen by two young couples last month, but may be one that has kept cropping into headlines since that time. A large owl, uncommon to this area, was killed Tuesday night by Ace Henry on his farm at Gallipolis Ferry. The bird, which has a wing spread of nearly five feet, has several areas of white and is speckled with black. On the underside of the wings, the plumage is snowy white and white fur-like feathers encircle the large eyes and cover the claws. Henry said he shot it with a 20-gauge shotgun Tuesday night after it was spotted sitting on top of his barn. He said at first he thought it was a hawk, but after killing it, he was perplexed to know its true identity. The Register editorial staff, in an attempt to identify the bird, has concluded that it is a snowy owl. The snowy owl is an inhabitant of northern regions where his coloring blends with the snowy surroundings. In the winter, it travels south through the states and sometimes as far as Texas. On the wing, it is so swift that it will overtake a grouse in flight. Again, it's not even a five-foot wingspan. Highly unlikely that this is what witnesses saw, unless the skeptics are suggesting that those witnesses with close encounters who have even required medical treatment afterwards were just so incredibly stupid as to mistake a small owl for a man-sized beast. 
not to mention the conjunctivus uh, that was suffered. You know, the eye burn from looking at this owl, I just, it doesn't add up. But a lot of the skeptic sites and a lot of the skeptic researchers that reference this Mothman legend and lore, they, they like to point to a conclusion and ignorantly claim Ocom's razor as, well, the simplest explanation is correct. First of all, that's not the simplest explanation. You got hundreds of people who don't know what an owl is? That's not quite simple. That's calling a ton of people stupid. It doesn't add up. Not to mention, that's not what the true Occam's razor is. The, o the true Occam's razor is that two competing theories that make the same prediction, the simpler one would more likely be correct. That's if they're equal. Now, clearly they're not equal. So if a more complex theory has a better explanation, for example, you'd have to ignore so many things and make more assumptions if it's just an owl. You'd have to say, all these people are so stupid or insane. You'd have to say, they didn't really see glowing red eyes or the long neck or not long neck. You'd have to make all these extra assumptions. So assuming that it's a bird is would actually be more incorrectly complex based on assumptions. But if, you, if the more complex theory better explains something, then Occam's razor would favor the more complex theory. If you're using the purely medieval definition, where complexity would involve assumptions that couldn't be tested, that's where it really came from. Alfred North Whitehead had a great quote. He said, the aim of science is to seek the simplest explanation of complex facts. We are apt to fall into the error of thinking that the facts are simple because simplicity is the goal of our quest. The guiding motto in life of every natural philosopher should be seek simplicity and distrust it. So, and once again, to say again, all things being equal, the simplest explanation is correct. But 99% of the time, especially in paranormal phenomena, that things are not equal. So to make the, to pretend to erroneously state that these different theories are equal in any way with equal evidence would not be correct. So Occam's razor is really only meant to be applied in theories that are both equally possible given the current evidence. Once again, the skeptics would don't even want to consider the possibility of an alien interdimensional monster creature, which once again, we have no way of knowing if that's what it is, just exploring the theories. Once again, condemnation without investigation is the height of ignorance. You have to say it's possible, but be skeptical of it. Be skeptical of everything, including it being an owl or a sandhill crane. So another way to think about it is the simplest explanation that fits the data. Not pretending data doesn't exist. Obviously, different data has different veracity. You'd have to trust witnesses, you know, whatever you're doing. But if in a complex scenario, you need to you need more data, not just completely write it off and pretend you're applying Ocom's razor successfully. And there really, I mean, how often is there a clearly equal support to two theories? It's very, very rare, especially in the paranormal and the supernatural. There's just varying, even even with the Mothman, like some people saw no neck, some people saw a neck, glowing red eyes, not glowing red eyes. It's it's just, there's no, it's not even close to equal data, so you wouldn't even come to the point of applying Occam's razor, and if you're just purely using the old medieval definition, it wouldn't apply. 
So, I'm gonna close with this. It must have been truly frightful living in the Point Pleasant area during these 13 months and truly devastating for the families affected by the Silver Bridge collapse and the loved ones lost. Truly a bizarre period of history, and we haven't even gotten into a lot of the mystery with the UFOs, the Men in Black, the Poltergeist activity. I don't know what to make of it, I'm just exploring all of it to try to make the most in-depth presentation of the Mothman case. We hope you enjoyed another edition of the Mindshock Podcast. In the next episodes of the Mothman series, we will be discussing the Chief Cornstalk Curse, UFOs, and Men in Black activity that eclipsed even the Mothman pandemonium at the time. If you enjoy the podcast, you can donate to our PayPal so we can bring you even more episodes quicker. Just check the link in the description. This is Bruce McGuire signing off. Have a good night, everyone.